Chapter 2 The Biblical Doctrine of Man In inviting the reader to an examination of the biblical doctrine of man, it's important that we emphasize how deeply entrenched is the notion that the essential personality of man resides in the spirit or soul, which is temporarily housed in a physical body. Death, then, will be seen as the transference of the conscious soul to another sphere. A typical parent's guide to answering the questions of the young about, quote, what happens when you die, will describe death as, quote, moving house to a new location, or the shedding of the encumbrance of the body so that the real person may escape. The graveyard will be seen as a coat room in which our temporary clothing is discarded. I quote, what happens to you when you die? Asks a six-year-old in the book Questions Children Ask by Jeremy Hughes, the wife of a Church of England vicar. Parents are counseled to reply, I quote, when we die, we leave our bodies behind because they are now of no use to us. And we take what's really important, the real you and me, with us, our real selves go to heaven. End of quotation. No attempt is made here to show how this could possibly have been what Jesus and the apostles taught. The Platonic Barrier now, while it is true that such language bears some affinity to a single passage in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 8, it bears a much more striking resemblance to the language of Platonic philosophy. It proceeds, in fact, from a definition of man which lies quite outside the scope of the biblical writers. Our familiar phrase about, quote, keeping body and soul together is commonly taken to reflect an authentically Christian view of death as separation of soul and body. But what is the source of such thinking? An examination of Scripture will show that the biblical writers knew nothing of a separable conscious existence for the soul after it had left the body. In popular preaching, the words soul and spirit will often be used interchangeably to refer to that part of man which is supposed to survive death, carrying with it the real person still fully conscious, though without a body. But in speaking of death, the New Testament does not confuse soul and spirit, nor does it ever suggest that man can maintain a conscious existence apart from his body. The terms soul and spirit retain in the New Testament, generally speaking, the meanings assigned to them by the Old Testament, although the word spirit in the New Testament is more closely associated with the higher life imparted by Holy Spirit. The Platonic view of the soul as the real man surviving death creates a constant barrier 
to any understanding of the genuinely Christian view of man. Moreover, the Greek concept seriously interferes with the central biblical doctrine of the resurrection, both of Jesus and of all the faithful. This fact has been, and continues to be, clearly stated by writers in theology, though their protest seems to go unheeded. Our attachment to traditional ways of thinking about man, especially in relation to death, makes it almost impossible for us to approach the subject open-mindedly. Nevertheless, to arrive at the point of view shared by Jesus and the apostles, we must lay aside the presuppositions so effectively inculcated by the post-New Testament Greek influence and look afresh at the genuinely biblical doctrine of man. The distinguished Swiss theologian Oskar Kuhlmann refers to the, quote, widespread mistake of attributing to primitive Christianity the Greek belief in the immortality of the soul. That's from Kuhlmann's book, Resurrection or Immortality. He speaks of the immortality of the soul as a widely accepted idea, but, quote, one of the greatest misunderstandings of Christianity. I quote again from Oscar Kuhlmann, There is no point in attempting to hide this fact or to veil it by reinterpreting the Christian faith. This is something that should be discussed quite candidly. That's a quotation from Oscar Kuhlmann's Resurrection or Immortality. With these observations, we heartily agree. The American theologian George Eldon Ladd states that to understand the biblical hope for immortality, we must first understand the biblical view of man. This concept, he says, quote, stands in sharp contrast to the Greek view of man. One of the most influential Greek concepts of man stems from Platonic thought and has often had a strong influence on Christian theology. It is that man is a dualism of body and soul. The soul is immortal and so-called salvation means the flight of the soul at death to escape the burden of the phenomenal world and find fulfillment in the world of eternal reality. In sharp contrast to this view of death, Dr. Ladd points out that, quote, Paul never conceives of the salvation of the soul apart from the body. Neither man's soul nor spirit is viewed as an immortal part of man which survives death. The biblical word soul is practically synonymous with the personal pronoun. There is no thought of an immortal soul existing after death. That's in George Ladd's book, I believe, in the resurrection of Jesus. The far-reaching effects of Greek philosophy on the Christian faith are described also by G.A.F. Knight in his book, Law and Grace. I quote, Many people today, even believing people, 
are far from understanding the basis of their faith. Quite unwittingly, they depend upon the philosophy of the Greeks rather than upon the Word of God for an understanding of the world they live in. An instance of this is the prevailing belief amongst Christians in the immortality of the soul. Many believers despair of this world. They despair of any meaning in a world where suffering and frustration seem to rule. And so they look for a release for their souls from the weight of the flesh, and they hope for an entry into, quote, the world of the spirit, as they call it, a place where their souls will find a blessedness they cannot discover in the flesh. The Old Testament, which is, of course, the scriptures of the early church, has no word at all for the modern or ancient Greek idea of soul. We have no right to read this modern word into St. Paul's Greek word, psychi, for by it he was not expressing what Plato had meant by the word, he was expressing what Isaiah and what Jesus meant by it. There is one thing, sure, we can say at this point, and that is that the popular doctrine of the soul's immortality cannot be traced back to a biblical teaching. It remains an astonishing fact that the messages of comfort heard constantly at funeral services in which, quote, the souls of the departed are said to be already, quote, in heaven, these statements reaffirm a central tenet of Greek philosophy which cannot truthfully be called Christian at all. We proceed now to an examination of the biblical concept of soul. It is our understanding of this term which will condition our understanding of the state of man in death. The foundation of the biblical anthropology is laid in Genesis 2, verse 7. I quote, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The creation of man is thus described in two stages. The organized body, while still lifeless, is nevertheless man, man produced from the dust of the ground. We emphasize that while yet without animation, the creature is nonetheless man, the first Adam who is, as Paul puts it, quote, out of the earth made of dust. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47. When the breath of life is breathed into his nostrils, the man becomes an animated soul. The Hebrew word is nephesh. We meet here the fundamentally important Hebrew word nephesh, soul, as descriptive of man, the living soul. But we must note at once that nephesh, in Genesis 1, verses 20, 21, 24, and 30, had already referred also to animals. The translators of our English versions have rendered us a disservice by concealing this fact. They were apparently so tied to the notion that the word soul must mean 
immortal soul, the possession of man alone, that they were unwilling to reveal that the word soul is the common attribute of man and animal alike. In Genesis 1 verse 20, we find, quote, the moving creature, even living soul, nephesh. In verse 21, quote, every living soul, nephesh, that moves. In verse 24, let the earth bring forth the living soul, nephesh, after his kind. And in verse 30, quote, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is living soul, nephesh. The crucial point, the crucial point we establish here is that neither man nor animals are bipartite creatures consisting of a body and a soul which can be separated and continue to exist. Both men and animals are souls, that is, conscious beings animated by the infusion of the divine breath of life. As living souls, they may also be described as, quote, having souls, just as in English we may describe both man and animal as conscious beings or as having conscious being. In 23 passages of the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, Revelation 16, verse 3, the Hebrew word nephesh, or soul, or its equivalent Greek word psyche, is used of animals. In every case, the word soul is closely allied to the idea of animation or life. Thus, in Leviticus 17, verse 11, quote, the life or nephesh of the flesh is in the blood. Literally, the soul of the flesh is in the blood. The significant fact which emerges from this examination of the Hebrew concept of soul is that immortality is never for one moment associated with it. The creation of man in the image of God lifts him far above the animal in intelligence and moral discernment. But what he shares with the animal kingdom renders him prone to a similar death. For, quote, man is like the beasts that perish. Psalm 49, verse 12. Another quotation, a man has no preeminence over a beast. As the one dies, so dies the other. All are of the dust and all turn to dust again. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 19 and 20. The writer of Ecclesiastes echoes the words of God to Adam. Quote, Dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. We should not be surprised, therefore, to find that the Hebrews speak quite naturally of a dead soul. I quote, The soul that sins, it shall die. Ezekiel 18, verses 4 and 20. I quote again, There were souls who were defiled by the dead body. 
nefesh of a man. Leviticus 21 verse 11. We arrive here at a most useful definition of soul or nefesh, one which can be safely applied to a very large number of cases from Genesis to Revelation. For nefesh and its Greek equivalent psyche, when applied to man, translate easily as person. The biblical quote soul is essentially the individual, either a living person, soul, or a dead person, soul. In confirmation of this central fact of the biblical languages, we appeal to the distinguished British scholar Nigel Turner, author of Christian Words. He deals with the New Testament Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word nephesh. We must concede that the biblical Greek word psyche means physical life. Alongside this conception, there appears in biblical Greek the meaning person, the life of man, his will, emotions, and above all, the man as, quote, self. If a man gained all the world only to lose his psyche or soul, it represents a loss of himself, not a part of him. When there were added to the church about 3,000 psyche, in Acts 2, verse 41, whole men were added. The fear coming upon every psyche was upon every person. In Acts 2, verse 43, every psyche or person must be subject to the state. Romans 13, verse 1, and so throughout the New Testament, Acts 3, verse 23, Romans 2, verse 9, Romans 16, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, 1 Peter 3, verse 20, 2 Peter 2, verse 14, and Revelation 16, verse 3. We may add to these texts, Revelation 20, verse 4, which speaks of the, quote, souls of those who had been beheaded. Souls, in this passage, does not mean, and cannot mean, disembodied souls, as so often misread, but it means those persons who had been beheaded. In Revelation 20, verse 4, they are seen being raised to life to serve with Christ in the millennial reign. Psyche, or soul, in biblical Greek signifies what is characteristically human, the self. It is the personality, what we often call the ego. Emphasis is on the whole self. Mary's psyche was the human personality of Mary. Jesus wants me to repose upon him the whole of my weary personality, the ego, the entire me. Matthew 11, verse 29. Jesus gave his very self, his psyche, for the sheep. So we read in Nigel Turner's book, Christian Words. We are reminded here of the Old Testament prophecy that Jesus would pour out his soul, nephesh, 
that's to say himself, to death. Nigel Turner provides a gentle warning about the medieval and modern Christian misuse of the term soul to mean a separate faculty within us. He points out that this new definition owes its origin to pagan Greece and not to the Hebrew Old Testament. Dr. Turner has this to say, I quote, the soul is often conceived by Christians as if it were imprisoned in the body, as Plato conceived it, and it is said by Christians to fly to God at death in much the same way that Jesus gave up his pnevma, or spirit, when he died. That's from Christian Words by Dr. Nigel Turner. Dr. Turner concludes by quoting Norman Snaith in the magazine Interpretation of 1947. Nowhere in the Bible is there any suggestion of an immortal soul which survives death. To approach the scriptures with the foregone conclusion that the term, quote, soul is to be understood with Plato as an immortal part of man which sheds its physical home at death creates a fundamental confusion. It is not widely known that distinguished scholars have constantly protested against the quite unwarranted assumptions about the meaning of soul, which continue to make a nonsense of the biblical Christian definition of that term. From a mass of materials on the subject, now collated in the two volumes by Edwin Froome, entitled The Conditionalist Faith of Our Fathers, we quote the remarks of Hans Delitzsch, who lived from 1830 to 1890, a leading Hebraist. I quote, there is nothing in all the Bible which implies a native immortality. From the biblical point of view, the soul can be put to death. It is mortal. A distinguished American Episcopalian, Dr. J.D. McConnell, wrote, I quote, of the early Christians, those who were Greek brought to the new religion the Platonic idea that the soul was indestructible and the Greek influence gained the domination in the early church. The Platonic doctrine of the natural immortality of the soul came to be accepted. The notion was withstood from the beginning as being subversive of the very existence of Christianity. That's from McConnell's book, The Evolution of Immortality, in 1901. More recently, Canon Googe deplored the influence of Greek thought in Christianity with the statement that when the Greek and Roman mind came to dominate the church, there occurred a disaster from which the church has never recovered, either in doctrine or in practice. That's from Googe's book, the Calling of the Jews, that's part of a collection of essays on Judaism and Christianity written in 1939. Spirit in the Bible. We come now to the biblical term spirit. 
From Genesis 2, verse 7, we learn that the infusion of the breath of life into the man formed from the dust resulted in a living person, an animated being. It is clear that the breath of life imparts that vital spark of life which renders the man a living person or soul as opposed to a dead person or soul. The breath of life, the Hebrew word is ruach, meaning spirit, is the common possession of man and animal. As we learn from Genesis 7, verse 14, where, quote, every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird of every sort went into the ark to Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. The word breath here represents the important Hebrew word ruach. In verse 22 of the same chapter, the destruction of all life in the flood is summarized by the statement that, quote, all in whose nostrils was the spirit of life died. The common fate of man and beast is plainly described in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 19. I quote, for that which befalls the sons of men befalls the beasts. Even one thing befalls them. As the one dies, so dies the other. They all have one breath, so that a man has no preeminence over a beast. For all is vanity. All go to one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. At death, says the same writer, the spirit or ruach of man and animal alike returns to God who gave it. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 20 and chapter 12 verse 7. The psalmist shares the same view. Created beings in general come to a common end. For, quote, God takes away their breath or ruach, they die and return to their dust. Psalm 104, verse 29. The essence of the frailty of man lies for the biblical writers in the fact that at death his breath, or ruach, goes forth from him. He returns to the earth and, quote, in that very day his thoughts perish. Psalm 146, verse 4. For if God, quote, gathers to himself man's spirit and breath, all flesh shall perish together, and man shall turn again to the dust. That's a quotation from Job, chapter 34, verses 14 and 15. The Ruach of the Old Testament is the invisible vital force which animates the creation. It is the driving energy sustaining the function of brain and nervous system. When the Ruach is withdrawn from the body, the creature dies and the divine force returns to the one who gave it. The creature becomes unconscious in death since the Ruach 
the spirit of his sentient existence, has been removed. It cannot be too strongly emphasized that the biblical term spirit does not, any more than soul, contain the real personality capable of conscious existence apart from the body. The spirit is the life force creating animation. In the New Testament, the spirit has, it is true, come to designate the seat of the higher divine life imparted by the Holy Spirit. As Nigel Turner says, pnevma, spirit, and the adjective pnevmatikos, spiritual, have reference to the spiritual side of our nature. I quote, it is however almost impossible to detect whether in these sentences Paul refers to the believer's own pneva, spirit, or to the Holy Spirit. A quotation from Nigel Turner's book, Christian Words. Yet pneva, spirit, is still used in its original sense as the life force in James 2 verse 26. Quote, the body without the spirit is dead. It is appropriate, therefore, that death is described in two New Testament passages as the surrender of the spirit. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said these things, he expired. Luke 23 verse 46. And in Acts 7, verses 59 and 60, Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And having said this, he fell asleep. We must be careful not to read into these passages the Greek notion that spirit here means the real person now existing consciously as a disembodied spirit. To do so is to take a leap into the very different world of Greek philosophy. We are here at the very crux of the matter under discussion. The biblical view is that Stephen fell asleep. He did not continue to live elsewhere. He, Stephen, is still identified with the dead body, just as Jesus, the whole person, died when the divine life-giving spirit was withdrawn surrendered with the view to its restoration at the later moment of resurrection. In resurrection, the dead man arises from the grave where he is sleeping in the dust until the moment when he awakes in resurrection. Daniel 12, verse 2. Similarly, Lazarus had fallen asleep, the perfect tense making it quite clear that he had not only fallen asleep, but remained in sleep until his resurrection. And since, quote, Jesus had spoken of his death, Lazarus was dead and remained dead until he was called forth to life from the tomb. John 11, verse 11, verse 14, verse 43, and verse 44. We must emphasize that the departure of the Spirit cannot mean that the man himself departs fully conscious to another location. To read the scripture as if this were the meaning is simply to read into it 
the Greek notion of the soul as a conscious entity able to survive death. But reading into the Bible an alien Greek idea, which is incompatible with the Hebrew thinking, is to mix two opposing worlds of thought. The result can only be a confusion leading to the breakdown of communication between the apostles and ourselves. For by introducing our own traditional presuppositions into the scriptural records and supplying our own Greek definitions for keywords like soul and spirit, we erect a most effective barrier against understanding the Bible. We also deny the biblical insistence upon the reality of death. And in the case of Jesus, his real death for our sins. Because we have always believed that man survives death as a conscious disembodied spirit, we assume that the New Testament writers intend to convey that idea to us in the two passages in which the spirit is said to return to God. And we're not deterred by the complete absence in Scripture of any reference to a man's existing in the post-mortem state as a disembodied spirit. It comes as a shock to learn that in a single reference in the New Testament to a disembodied state in connection with death, the reference is to a condition which Paul shrinks from contemplating. We long to be clothed with a new body, Paul says, quote, so that we will not be found naked. We do not wish to be unclothed. That's in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 3 and 4. Our scholars are right to point out on the basis of this passage that, quote, the notion of a disembodied spirit is repugnant to the Hebrew mind. That's a quotation from Alan Richardson in his book, Introduction to New Testament Theology. Yet that is precisely the state we often envisage for the dead, allowing the real hope, the resurrection of the whole man from death to life, to fall into insignificance. Any interference with the central doctrine of resurrection must be taken most seriously as a threat to the scriptural view of our future. We must maintain, at all costs, the biblical emphasis upon the corporate resurrection of all the faithful together at the future return of Christ. For that great event, the faithful wait in earnest expectation, while the faithful dead rest in sleep in their graves. Daniel 12, verse 13.